I invite you to turn with me in the Book of Praise to page 501, where we find the teaching of Scripture concerning the nature of God being three persons in one essence, summarized by the church in the Belgic Confession, Article 8, and then the a separate article, Article 9, that outlines the scriptural proof. So we'll take those two together, 8 and 9. According to this truth and this Word of God, we believe in one only God, who is one single essence in which are three persons, really, truly, and eternally distinct according to their incommunicable properties, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father is the cause, origin, and beginning of all things visible and invisible. The Son is the Word, the wisdom, and the image of the Father. The Holy Spirit is the eternal power and might who proceeds from the Father and the Son. Nevertheless, God is not by this distinction divided into three, since the Holy Scriptures teach us that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit each has His personal existence, distinguished by their properties, but in such a way that these three persons are but one only God. It is therefore evident that the Father is not the Son, nor the Son the Father, and likewise the Holy Spirit is neither the Father nor the Son, Nevertheless, these persons thus distinguished are not divided nor intermixed. For the Father has not assumed our flesh and blood, neither has the Holy Spirit, but the Son only. The Father has never been without His Son or without His Holy Spirit. For these three, in one and the same essence, are equal in eternity. There is neither first nor last, for they are all three in one, in truth, in power, in goodness and in mercy. All this we know both from the testimonies of Holy Scripture and from the, their respective works of the three persons, and especially those we perceive in ourselves. The testimony of Scripture, which lead us to believe this Holy Trinity, are written in many places of the Old Testament. It is not necessary to mention them all. It is sufficient to select some with discretion. In the book of Genesis, God says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. Male and female, he created them. Also, the man has become like one of us. From God's saying, Let us make man in our image, it appears that there are more divine persons than one. And when he says God created, he indicates that there is one God. It is true, he does not say how many persons there are, but what seems to be somewhat obscure in the Old Testament is very plain in the New Testament. For when our Lord was baptized in the river Jordan, the voice of the Father was heard who said, This is my beloved Son. The Son was seen in the water, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form as a dove. For the baptism of all believers, Christ commanded, baptize all nations into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In the Gospel according to Luke, the angel Gabriel thus addressed Mary, the mother of our Lord. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. 
Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Likewise, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. In all these places, we are fully taught that there are three persons in one only divine essence. Although this doctrine far surpasses all human understanding, nevertheless, in this life, we believe it on the ground of the Word of God, and we expect to, to enjoy its perfect knowledge and fruit hereafter in heaven. Moreover, we must observe the distinct offices and works of these three persons towards us. The Father is called our Creator by His power. The Son is our Savior and Redeemer by His blood. The Holy Spirit is our Sanctifier by His dwelling in our hearts. The doctrine of the Holy Trinity has always been maintained and preserved in the true Church since the time of the Apostles to this very day. Over against Jews and Muslims and against false Christians and heretics such as Marcion, Manny, Praxius, Sabellius, Paul of Samosata, Arius, and such like, who have been justly condemned by the Orthodox Fathers. In this doctrine, therefore, we willingly receive the three creeds of the Apostles of Nicaea and of Athanasius. Likewise, that which in accordance with them is agreed upon by the early Fathers. So far, our confession in Articles 8 and 9. In response to the preaching about the Trinity, we'll sing about our Father, uh, Son, and Holy Spirit, the three and one with Him four, stanzas one, two, and three. Brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus our Lord, this afternoon then we take up this ancient confession of the Catholic Church, which states that there is something utterly unique and totally amazing about the one only true God. You'll recall that we began the Belgic Confession, Article 1, stating that God exists. We started where the Bible starts, Genesis 1, in the beginning God we all believe in the heart, we said in Article 1, and confess with the mouth that there is only one God who is a simple and spiritual being. And now in Article 8, we return to that subject, God, and confess that there is more to know about God. Indeed, He is one. But there is something more about God that makes Him more than one. There is something plural. God is one in essence, but He is three in persons. And so I proclaim to you this word of God. God reveals Himself to be three in one. He is a marvel to adore, a power to ponder, and a comfort to know. This fact that God is three in one is something that we learn from the Bible and from the Bible alone. The opening sentence in Article 8 stresses this point. According to this truth and this Word of God, we believe in one only God 
who is one single essence in which are three persons. So Article 8 and then Article 9 together make a powerful demonstration based on the Bible that God is three in one. This doesn't come from reason. This doesn't come from philosophical inquiry. It doesn't come from our experience or man's imagination. It simply comes from Scripture. And it's important that we understand that point and, and keep it clearly in mind because without the Bible, we would never arrive at this confession. We also accept this confession, this teaching. We also believe this teaching because it's found in the Bible and for no other reason. Because if it wasn't found in the Bible, we would never accept it. Because this, this confession, more than many others, it goes against reason. It goes against logic. Three in one confounds philosophers. It makes no sense to scientists or mathematicians. It cannot even be arrived at by experience. There's no analogy anywhere in creation. The threeness in the oneness. We only know it and accept it from the Bible. And it's good, even necessary, to be upfront about that so that we don't get caught off guard if somebody should challenge us. I once met a Muslim who grew up Christian here in Canada, but she rejected the doctrine, uh, she rejected Christianity because of the doctrine of the Trinity. She said to me, how can God be three and one at the same time? That doesn't make sense. That's illogical. I reject it. To which I responded, you're 100% right. It is not logical. I cannot reason it out in my mind. I can't explain it to you, but it is taught clearly in the Bible, in God's book. And because God teaches it to me, that's good enough for me. I accept it. I believe it. That's the difference, you see, between starting with Scripture as your source or reason as your source. Article 9, in fact, mentions Islam as one of the false religions, which conceives of God as totally singular. The human mind cannot fathom how God could be three in one, and so it, it rejects it on that basis. The Jews do the same. They think only of God as one, rejecting the claims of Jesus to be Son of God. That's also the way the Jehovah's Witnesses think. It's also the way the Church of the Latter-day Saints think. The church called goes by the other name of the Mormons. And maybe there's some confusion about what the Mormons uh, teach, and whether or not the Mormon faith is is Christian. After all, they call themselves a church. Is the church of the Latter-day Saints, is that a real church, like a real Christian church? Well, to answer that question, we only have to ask them one question, and that's this. Do you believe that Jesus is fully God? That He is one person of the Trinity? Do you believe that? Ask a Mormon that. They will answer you, no, we believe God is one and there is no plurality in God. And the Mormons will go on to say Jesus is the first 
of God's created beings, God's children. He's not even equal to God. So we should have to clear in our minds, brothers and sisters, you, you might meet Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses who have a lot of uh, good morals. They, they have a lot of good morals and we can appreciate their good morals, but they're not Christians and their assemblies are not churches, whatever they might call them. They're not Christian churches. So this whole doctrine, this whole teaching of the Trinity warns us, teaches us, not to take reason or logic as our starting point. That's not to say that we have to throw out reason and logic. No, we have to make use of this God-given gift, only it can never be the source of our beliefs. The source for our beliefs, the source for our thinking about God and, and religion has to be the Word of God, the Bible. And then reason becomes a helping hand, a guiding hand. We use our reason and logic to figure out what the Bible is trying to say. We compare Scripture with Scripture, and we use our understanding of what one writer is writing compared to what another is writing. And that's a perfectly reasonable thing, a logical thing to do, isn't it? Is it unreasonable that humans cannot comprehend the God who created all things out of nothing? Is that unreasonable? Is it illogical that some things are beyond the grasp of humans? Is it not perfectly understandable, even beneficial, to believe in a God who is so far and away greater than we humans are that we cannot even fathom His being? We cannot comprehend the, the fullness of His attributes or His power or His love. Isn't that perfectly logical that we are creature and the Creator is beyond us? And isn't that a blessing too? To know of a God who is beyond our human understanding. A God who gives us grace beyond understanding and sends us peace that passes all understanding and who has prepared for us a salvation and an everlasting life that's beyond human inquiry. So let's understand this well. Faith is not against reason. It's not contrary to reason. But faith goes beyond reason. And that is perfectly reasonable. Okay. Let's leave the logic behind us. What do we mean when we confess three in one? The more common term is trinity. Literally, that means tri-unity. Three in one. What does God teach then in Scripture about this? Well, on the one hand, God certainly declares that He is one. We can think of what Moses writes in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The New Testament stresses the same as well. 1 Timothy 2, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So it's very, very clear that God wants us to think of Him as one, one divine being. That's what the confession mean, means when it uses the word essence. 
Essence is a fancy word for substance. The very substance of an entity is called its essence, and God has a single essence. But at the same time, as Article 9 points out, the Bible teaches that God is in some way plural. The Confession cites Genesis 1 and 3, where God, early on in the Bible, speaks to Himself and He uses the word us. Let us make man in our image. Let us make… can't be the angels, right? Because angels don't create, they're creatures. Besides, when God says a few verses later that He made man, He made man in His image, not the angel's image. So the us is undefined in Genesis 1, but later in Scripture, the Gospel of John, we're told who the us includes. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things that were made were made through the Word, John goes on. Well, who is the Word? He tells us, John does, verse 14 of that chapter, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Christmas reveals the Word as the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So, the Son of God was there in Genesis 1 at the beginning, before the beginning and at the beginning. He was there. He's part of the us. This one God over the length of Scripture shows Himself to be both Father and Son. Just as we saw at the baptism of Matthew of Jesus in Matthew 3. Jesus was in the water, but a voice comes from heaven. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So there, there's at least two-ness in the oneness, we learn. But the New Testament tells us more. There's also a third involved, a person called the Holy Spirit. At Jesus' baptism, He is seen descending from heaven in the form of a dove to rest upon the sun. And if you go back to Genesis 1, He's there too, mentioned in the second verse of the Bible, the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. He's not some kind of impersonal force, not some kind of a, a generalized spirit. He's a He, not an It. That's what we mean when we talk about a person in this setting. When we normally use the word person, we, we're thinking of people, human beings. But when we talk about God, it's hard to find language to talk about God because He's so unique. So ancient theologians have used the word person, and they say that He is three persons, meaning that he has three individual personas, we might say. That maybe that resonates a bit more. He's one in essence, but has three personas. Each person has his own personality. And I recognize that we're, we're always going to be struggling to find words to describe the sun. So if that doesn't uh, quite resonate with you, don't, don't worry because... It's hard to get this precisely. The Holy Spirit, though, is definitely not an it. He is 
like the Son and the Father, a divine person. Distinct. The apostle, how do we know that? Well, there's a bunch of Scripture passages. The apostle Peter tells us in Acts 5 that Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit. Well, you can't lie to an it, right? You can't lie to a force. Paul, in Ephesians 4, warns us that we are not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Can't grieve an it. A force does not have emotions. A mere power does not grieve. Only a being, only a person can be offended, can be grieved, can be angered. And so we come to see, when you put all the bits of evidence together, we come to see that this single God, this one God, exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And just that understanding, that revelation alone, doesn't that cause your mind to marvel? He's incomprehensible, as we confessed in Article 1. He's three persons, but not three gods. He's one God. Nor is each person a part of God. Sometimes people think along those lines as if God is like a, uh, you know, three leaves on a clover leaf or three branches on a tree. No, each person is 100% God, fully God. If you were to see Jesus, if you were to meet Jesus like the apostles did, <coughs> you would be seeing God, not a part of God, not one-third of God, not 33% of God. That's God in the flesh. If you worship the Father, then you're worshiping God. If you worship the Spirit, you are worshiping God. If you worship the Son, you're worshiping God. It's beyond our understanding, but it's wondrous and amazing nonetheless, is it not? Trinity in unity and unity in Trinity, one glorious God who presents Himself in these three astounding persons. All we can say is hallelujah. It's to drive us to praise this magnanimous and magnificent God. The angels, remember, are surrounding Him day and night. There's, there's a set number of angels that are praising Him day and night around the throne. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. No wonder. We only catch a glimpse and we're amazed. They see Him in the fullness of glory and they're astounded. Well, our praise for our triune God will only grow when we ponder His power. One of the things about the Trinity that our confession is careful to teach is that though God is one, we are never to mix up the persons as if they all kind of slide into and out of one, each other's personality, or as if the one could be identified with the other in their persons. The second paragraph of Article 8 uh, clarifies that the Father is not the Son, nor the Son the Father, and likewise the Holy Spirit is neither the Father nor the Son. We'll see that a bit more when later on we confess our faith with the Athanasian Creed. The Father didn't come down to earth and become crucified on the cross. The Son did. And there's other ways to distinguish the persons. They are not to be 
mixed together. They're not to be divided from each other as if they could ever be apart from each other. This is part of the incomprehensibility of, of our triune God. But where the Son is, there you also have the Spirit and the Father. And yet, they're not mixed. Where the Spirit dwells, so dwells the Father and the Son. And yet, they don't blend into each other as persons. They are co-equal. They are co-eternal. It staggers the mind to think of it all and try to, to grasp it, but that is what the Bible teaches. That's why we accept it. God is a complete fullness in Himself. He lacks nothing in His triune existence. He's never needy. He's never lonely. He always has fellowship within Himself, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Together they possess and they exercise all authority and all the power that could possibly ever exist. It all really is theirs. Article 8 begins to bring that out in the opening lines. The Father is the cause, the origin, and the beginning of all things, visible and invisible. The Son is the Word and the image and the wisdom of the Father, the Holy Spirit is the eternal power and might who proceeds from the Father and the Son. Well, let's just slow that down a minute. Scripture teaches that God the Father is responsible for the creation of all things. The Son and the Spirit were certainly involved in that. We read that from John 1 and Genesis 1. But the Father, He took action. The Father initiated and He's responsible for the creation of everything that exists. I mean, just, just pause over that for a moment. I mean, the Father has made all things that we can see and all that we can't see. Every animal, every fish in the sea, every bird in the air, every land animal that there is, every plant, shrub, and tree, every atom, every electron, every neutron, Every man, woman, and child, every angel, every demon, even the devil himself, all of them in their original sinless form were created by God the Father. Is he not amazing just in that fact alone? No wonder David says a number of times in the Psalms, the Lord is at my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Why should we worry about, about human enemies and human opponents when our God has made every fiber, not just in our own being, but also in the being of our enemies? Why should we be afraid of a human enemy when our God can end his life any moment he chooses? And the sun is no less impressive in his power. The confession mentions that He is the Word, the wisdom, and the image of the Father. You know what a word does. A word communicates. It makes something known. It reveals. When the Son became a man, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, He revealed to man the wisdom and the image of the Father. Don't we see that in Jesus' many responses to His opponents, the Pharisees? They came with their questions so frequently, trying to trap Jesus, right? 
trying to snare him in some logical corner or quandary to pin him on some charge of breaking the law so they could arrest him. They asked him one time whether it was lawful to divorce, thinking that they had him on the horns of a dilemma because Moses had granted divorce in the law of Moses. But Jesus showed the the deep wisdom of God when he answered very simply, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. You Pharisees, you look for excuses to divorce your wife and leave your wife hard done by, but you should repent and humble yourself and seek to reconcile and be one with your wife. That's the way the Creator made it. See, the Lord just trumps the legalities and the foolishness of man. When they asked him about paying taxes to Caesar, whether that was lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, they figured they could peg him as either a Roman sympathizer or as a rebel to Rome, but he absolutely blew them away with his answer. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. The wisdom of God is unthwartable. That's Jesus. He's unthwartable. Isn't that a blessing to know when you and I are faced sometimes with antagonistic questions from people we might meet or maybe someday on a witness stand in a court of law or in front of a human rights tribunal where they're peppering questions at you and trying to pin you to the wall with their, their logic because you are a follower of Christ. Maybe there's other times too when we're afraid of being put on the spot Afraid of being called out as a follower of Jesus because we, we don't know what we would say. Well, brothers and sisters, don't, don't worry about what you would say. You know, the Lord promised to the disciples that the Holy Spirit would give them the words they needed in the moment that they needed them. So that comes down to us. The Bible elsewhere in James 1 says to us, Ask God for wisdom and you will receive it. You don't have to worry. The Spirit of God lives in you to provide the words in the moment. A wisdom which will defy the best obstacles man can raise up. A wisdom which knocks down those obstacles. Well, even more than providing knowledge and understanding, Jesus is also God's wisdom in action. His very coming down to the earth, His lifelong suffering under our curse, the curse of our sin, His drive to go to Jerusalem and the cross, His crucifixion, His death, resurrection, the entire life ministry of Jesus Christ is the great wisdom of God on display. This was how God was going to make things right. Satan thought, as Jesus went to the cross, Satan thought God was losing Mankind thought Jesus was a troublemaker to be disposed with. To the Jews, the cross is a stumbling block. And to Gentiles, the cross is foolishness. But to the Creator and to the Judge of all people, Jesus was the solution. Jesus was the divine answer, the full recompense for all our sin and guilt. 
Christ was and is the wisdom of God to provide for us the grace and the mercy and the peace we so desperately seek, the peace everlasting. And then there is the Holy Spirit, who's described in Article 8 as the eternal power and might who proceeds from the Father and the Son. The Spirit is power personified. He's not an it, remember? He's a he. He is the one who executes the will of the Father and the Son. He brings it to pass. It's the Spirit who hovered over the waters in Genesis 1 in the beginning. What was He doing? He was holding together the unformed earth in its newly created state. It's the same Spirit who is sent forth every spring to renew the face of the earth, Psalm 104. Did you know that's the Holy Spirit who causes the leaves to bud on the trees and the grass to sprout from the earth and the flowers and so forth? It is the Spirit of God who is the Lord and giver of life. It is the Spirit who descended upon the Messiah at His baptism and empowered Him to do His incredible task and provided Him with that wisdom. And now think about this. Is it not incredible? Is it not amazing that this very same Spirit hovered over the waters, dwelt upon the sun, has been poured out upon the church? The invincible Spirit of the triune God has taken up residence in your heart and in mine. And in those of all true believers, the Spirit is with us to do so many things, to change our hearts from the stone that they are by birth to the soft heart that loves God, to give us faith to clear our conscience and provide us with peace that Jesus has paid for us so that we can go to God every day and have fellowship with Him and that we can fight against the powers of sin that attack us so much. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one. One God in three persons, altogether powerful, altogether wonderful, altogether lovely, altogether using their power for our benefit. What a comfort to know, is it not? Because we have quite a task in this world, quite a life to live in this world, this world that is upside down and shattered by sin. One of our tasks is to go out and make disciples of all nations. We make disciples out of our own children as parents. We are to make disciples of our next-door neighbors. We are to make disciples of people in faraway lands, Brazil and Indonesia and wherever God enables us to go. The challenge is massive because of the opponents, because of the sin in our own hearts, because of the sin in the hearts of others, because of the opposition of unbelievers, of Satan and the devil, because of sin's corruption all around us. And you can think of the results of sin that we run into, sickness, Injury, death, perversion of many kinds, broken relationships, addictions, and so many other consequences of sin. 
It's wearying just to think about the opposition we face. It's wearying just to, to think about the obstacles that confront us in our task just of raising our own kids. Right? A whole bunch of parents here. How easy is it to parent your children? Well, let's take the comfort of the gospel of the Trinity home with us today. Listen to this commission of our Lord Jesus in Matthew 28. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I want you to notice something. There are three persons mentioned, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three persons. But did you notice that there's only one name mentioned? Jesus uses the singular. I want you to baptize them into the name. And then he mentions the three persons of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. The three are one. And if the Son sends us, which he has, then they all send us. And if the Son is with us, as He's promised, they're all with us. Triple power, triple presence, triple comfort, triple ability to do this impossible work. And so we rest secure. Psalm 62, we rest on the rock that is our triune God. Article 9 sums it up so nicely. The Father is called our Creator by His power. The Son is our Savior by His blood. The Holy Spirit is our Sanctifier by His dwelling in our hearts. Three persons, three tasks, all geared toward us. All geared toward us. Small, unimportant, insignificant, inconsequential creatures. The powerful triune God has us in His sights. Why would he do that? Why would this almighty God bother with creatures like us, with all of our problems? Because of who he is. Because of His love somewhere in the depth of His being for reasons that we can't fully understand either. He has chosen to set His grace upon sinful, rebellious, wretched creatures like us. He set His undying, bottomless love upon us a love that shines upon us and fills us and lifts us up in our troubles. It's even a love that carries us through the sorrows of this life until we're on the other side of it, this sorrowful life, with Him in eternity. That's what He does for us because of His love.
Trinity in unity. You know, I'm, I'm glad I can't understand that. If my problems and my struggles defy my logic and my reason, if I can't figure out what's happening and why it's happening, I'm not going to get upset. For my God is greater than my logic. He's greater than my reason. He's greater than my feelings. I can't figure out a lot of things. But Father, Son, and Spirit can. And they do. In fact, they've got it planned. And they've promised to look after me, to help me day by day until the problems are no more. That's the gospel of the Trinity. That's the good news every Christian can depend on. Amen.